Well, hello and welcome to Valley Lights Church Online. My name is Bruce Wood. I'm the lead pastor here and I'm glad that you've joined us. Today we're continuing a message series called The Difference. And we've been tracing the impact of the Christian movement throughout history on various sectors of human life and human experience. A lot of people have speculated as to whether Christianity has been helping or hurting our world. The Christian faith has taken many forms and has been practiced in a variety of ways of over the years. But today we're going we're gonna to get our bearings by going directly to the source of the Christian movement, Jesus himself. And I want to ask, what did Jesus come in the world to do? What was he hoping to accomplish? In the Gospel of Luke, we find it a written documentation of a time when Jesus clearly stated his purpose. Essentially, Jesus came to set people free. Here's the setting where he made this clear. We're going to look in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. It says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, Jesus entered the synagogue on a Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. And uh, he's about to read something from the scroll, but what, what he reads is actually a very old prophecy about the Messiah, the coming Savior that everybody was waiting for. And they didn't realize it at first, but Jesus was actually reading about himself. So he reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's Savior. And after he reads all this, he says, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. <laughs> what a powerful statement of Jesus' purpose. He came to give release from spiritual captivity, to give healing and freedom to people. And at first, his listeners were really delighted when they heard Jesus talk about setting people free. They thought his words were gracious. It says that they spoke well of him. And they thought, yes, of course. We Jewish people, we should experience the Lord's favor. But they didn't realize that Jesus was also talking about setting the Gentiles free. And uh, if you don't know what a Gentile is, you, you could look it up in an English dictionary. In Merriam-Webster it says, a Gentile is a person of non-Jewish tradition or of non-Jewish faith. Or it says it's a pagan. Or as an adjective, a, uh, a Gentile is someone of or relating to the nations at large as distinguished from the Jews. So the Greek word in the New Testament for Gentile is um, ethnos. It literally means nations or people. But really the sense is that Gentiles are, are a person from an ethnic group or nation not allied with and trusting in the God of Israel. And so Gentiles is, is really just a term used for any ethnic background other than Jewish. So among the Jews, there was a really intense attitude of superiority between races. They couldn't imagine that God would extend favor and freedom to any Gentile outsiders. So things took an unexpected turn this, you know, sunny Sabbath morning in the synagogue. <laughs> things got very heated. And this happened when Jesus referred to a few stories from Israel's history in which their ancestors had rejected God. 
And in response, God extended kindness and life-saving help to Gentiles, to people outside of the nation of Israel, including some of their enemies. And so people listening in the synagogue that day, they couldn't take another word from this Jesus guy. They knew that he was implying that some of you have rejected God. And so God is planning to bring freedom to the outsiders also. People from other nations are going to be welcomed into the family of God. And so the listeners, they thought Jesus was wildly off base, and they hated to think that any other outsiders would be taken in by God. And here's what it says. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. Their minds were set on murder. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Whether that was by, uh, you know, a miracle or spiritual blindness or what, he got, he got away from this enraged crowd. But the point is that this strong emotional reaction reveals the presence of some pretty big racial barriers between people in the days of Jesus. The adversaries of Jesus believed that we're superior and other people are undeserving. This attitude of superiority had crept into the culture and became a dominant way of thinking. Now, don't you think that this attitude has been repeated throughout the centuries? How often in our world has one group of people said, we're superior, we're better, and other groups are inferior and undeserving? Many great evils in the history of our planet have been committed that stem from this attitude. In the past few, few years, here in our country, you've probably heard buzzwords like systemic racism or identity politics. You've probably heard politicians promise for unity. And for all of the attention that this topic's been getting, do you think that our country is getting more unified or more divided? To me, it seems like there's a greater number of battle lines being drawn between different types of people. There's division now and there was division during Jesus' day. And throughout his ministry, Jesus smashed through all kinds of barriers that people placed between themselves. He smashed barriers of race and gender, socioeconomics, and more. Barriers that keep threatening to imprison and segregate people throughout history. And Jesus taught his followers that these man-made barriers don't matter. They don't prevent a person from experiencing God's love and forgiveness. So in this passage of Luke chapter 4, Jesus declared his purpose is to give all people a chance to experience true freedom. We who are followers of Jesus can carry forward the mission that he started. This topic sheds light on a question that we've been asking throughout this series. Is our world better or worse off because of the presence of Christianity? And to help answer that question, we've been tracing the initial spread of Christianity just after Jesus completed his earthly work as it's recorded in the book of Acts. And so next we're going to see that one way Christians carry out his purpose is by tearing down racial barriers. So we're going to look again at the spread of the Christian movement and see how the early church, the first century Christians, addressed an issue of prejudice and superiority that rose up. We're going to start at the end of Acts chapter 14. This is just after 
Paul's first missionary journey. And Paul was the guy helping spread the good news about Jesus all over. And at the end of chapter 14, we read this. It says, uh, From there, Paul and Barnabas sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had completed. So they're going back to Antioch, which is kind of like a big homecoming. They have, you know, they've been gone for about a year, spreading the good news and seeing miracles be done, and a lot of people come to faith in Christ. This is really exciting things, lots of stories to tell. And it says, after they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything that had God had done with them. And they reported that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, those outsiders. And they spent a considerable time with the disciples, it says. So here's the big news. Paul and Barnabas brought faith and light to the Gentiles. And this is really good news because God's kingdom was expanding. And if this never happened, very few of us, and, and me included, I, we would not have been invited into God's family. So the church in Antioch was celebrating. And, and you've got to understand that, that that church there in that day, it was already a pretty racially diverse group. There was a mix of nationalities represented at, in the Antioch church. In uh, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, The church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and then it lists a bunch of people. There's Barnabas. He was of Jewish descent, but he came from the island of Cyprus. So that's one nationality there. There was also Simeon, who is called uh, Niger. Uh, in Greek, Niger just means black or dark in color. So we don't know exactly where he's from, but just that his skin was darker. Um, there's also Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa, near modern-day Libya. There was Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. He grew up in the Judean region, and that's where Herod ruled. And then there was Saul. And, of course, Saul later becomes Paul, and he was from Tarsus, which is not really that far from Antioch. So this is people from all over the place. And... It was a mix of people, and naturally, when Paul and Barnabas brought this report of acceptance of people from a lot of other nations, well, that probably was already a pretty normal thing for them. That was just a part of who they were. So that's the context, and if we look in chapter 15, you know, things get bumpy, because some men came down from Judea. That's where Jerusalem was, that's, and there were men from the official church in Jerusalem. And they began to teach the brothers. We don't know why this group came down, but it's really, it's unlikely that there was this delegation sent down. Um, they, they just took it upon themselves to bring a message. And here was the message that they gave. In reference to all these Gentiles, these outsiders, these people coming into the family of God, they said, hey, unless you're circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, circumcision, you know, that's a practice that we still have today, usually done on baby boys, <laughs> but it was a part of the Jewish custom, and essentially this group came from Jerusalem to Antioch to make this announcement, saying basically it's fine if these outsiders want to become Christians, but they're going to need to do things our way. They need to be circumcised according to the laws and the customs. And you can imagine how exciting a group of men would be about getting circumcised. <laughs> you know, there's, uh, there's some real physical implications there. But beyond that, there was, there was a lot of other implications too. Um, not just that one law, but just a real burden of having 
to do certain things in a certain way in order to be a genuine Christian. This really stirred up the group in Antioch. It says in verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, things probably got pretty heated. Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem about this issue. So we, we got to get this. We got to get this figured out. We need to get this settled. And when they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through some other areas, Phoenicia and Samaria. And all, all along the way, they were describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. So as they go, as they go, they're spreading good news. Hey, the Gentiles are getting saved. You know, couldn't keep it in. But they finally arrived at Jerusalem. They were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders. And basically, they were talking to the official, recognized leaders of the church. And they reported that all that God had done with them. In verse 5, it says, But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up. Now, this is, this is part of the renegade group that sent some people to stir things up in Antioch. So the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So, that's a big statement. We, we should call these guys the Jesus Plus group. <laughs> uh, for them, they would say, if you're not the right nationality, then the grace of Jesus Christ is not enough for you. You also need to keep our Jewish customs and laws. Now, these Jesus Plus guys they were Christians. In fact, they had given up so much when they became Christians. For many of them, their own parents and families totally rejected them. And uh, one historian writes about this group of Pharisees, and they say, that, you know, they, it says they lost everything because of their association with the Savior. It was very natural for some of them to find it difficult to make a clean break with their past as Pharisees. Though Christians, they could not bring themselves just to give away centuries of distinctives that had set their people apart from the world. So with good intentions, they thrust those distinctives and traditions onto others. That was from Kent Hughes, author of Acts, The Church of Fire. So this group, it, they, they just wouldn't let the issue go. The official church leaders convened to sort this out finally. Verse 6, it says, The apostles and elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, now Peter is the right guy for the job. He brings everyone's attention. This, this actually really does settle the matter. He says, brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, and that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. Now this is a powerful statement because they know that Peter, actually if you look back in Acts chapter 10, you can read this on your own, you'll see how Peter helped an Italian centurion soldier come to Christ. His name was Cornelius, his close friends, and all of his family and relatives. They were, they were all Gentiles. They came to Christ. There was a big um, stir about how that, that truly happened. That was a known fact. Peter reminds them of this story, and he states, he says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Peter basically says that those outer distinctions don't matter. They're of no real value because we all have this thing in common that our hearts need cleansing because of our sin. Our hearts are filthy, dirty, and we need God to wash 
clean our hearts. And this is really only available through putting our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. And Peter says, Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke, like a burden, on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? He's saying basically to put the Gentiles under Jewish law would be to enslave them in an unbearable way. It's impossible to keep all of the law and all the regulations fully and perfectly. He's like, even the best of us Jews can't do that. We needed grace, which is why God sent Jesus to offer grace. So what we see here is, is Peter affirms the fact that Jesus came to set people free. And so he finishes with this. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way they are. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and the wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. So I think this group received the correction from Peter. He was the right guy to speak up, and it really helped when he did. And everyone is able to start taking in the news that Paul experienced on his missionary journey. Here's the point that they needed, and here's the point that we still need today, is that God makes no distinction between peoples. The core verse that we read from Peter is that he, he says, God made no distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith. Just like those Jewish Christians struggle to live up to Jesus' radical liberty, so too we Christians throughout the centuries. Those Jewish Christians, they feared that they would lose aspects of their Jewish culture if they just let them go. And they really struggled to believe that Gentiles from all nations could simply enter the church. For some, it's, it's still a temptation to use external distinctions, you know, things that are about us or our family background or our skin color to divide and dominate and to damage us. Those things like our, our nationality or maybe our education our wealth, our skin color, it makes no difference in regards to our access to God and His grace. And praise God for that. What a blessing to know that that's true. And thankfully, not just Peter, and Paul and Barnabas, but many men and women over the centuries have grabbed a hold of this truth and they have felt compelled to lead their nations toward it. I want you to see just a, a few specific people who work to tear down racial barriers in the modern world. You'll see that, you know, it, it's not just been good people, but Christians who are the ones who have worked to tear down racial barriers. One, one relevant to our country is Martin Luther King, Jr. The Reverend Martin Luther King, this is a quote from author John Dickerson. He says, King is without a doubt among the most influential and successful advocates of racial equality and human rights. And a survey of his sermons and speeches and writings makes it clear that King was motivated and shaped by the teachings of Jesus Christ and the Christian Bible. MLK urged people to judge people not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. It was also Christians who were the driving force to bring the end of open slavery. Throughout history, freedom is not the norm. You know, countries of, where people just live and walk around free, that, that's not been the norm. Slavery has been the norm. 
It was the norm in ancient Mayan culture, Egyptian culture, Roman culture, Arab culture, Greek culture, and then hundreds of others. Slavery has been the norm. That's where humanity tends to gravitate towards. But Christians have worked to end that entirely. Harriet Tubman, the woman who was called Moses, she had a nickname because she led so many people out of slavery. Her faith was so strong that she would ask God for direction out loud as she was leading people to freedom, being chased by slave owners. She even prayed for her own unsaved master. Harriet Tubman believed God was real, and she, li and she lived with a faith that took action. Another compelling figure was William Wilberforce. Now, at first, this guy was not a humanitarian. Actually, he was not a very good person. <laughs> he didn't care about slaves, but he became a Christian. And then he started reading the New Testament. And then he wrote a book called Real Christianity, where he wrote that God opened his eyes to the evils of slavery. And he gave the rest of his life to ending slavery in Britain. The effects of his work impacted much of the world. Actually, a big, a big chunk of the globe was impacted by his work. Again, John, John Dickerson says that Wilberforce remains credited more than any other individual with ending the slave trade in the vast British Empire, including India, which had an estimated 8 to 9 million indigenous slaves in the Hindu caste system. It's amazing. Amazing impact. World-changing impact. The success of Wilberforce gave the momentum needed to complete the abolition of slavery in other parts of the world including the U.S. in the 1860s and Africa in the 1890s. Here's another powerful statement by that same author, and I think this is probably a message that Wilberforce would have said. If you read your Bibles, you'll see that slavery is declared evil by God. Anyone who claims to be a Christian while owning a slave is not a true follower of Christ. And all those who sit by while others are enslaved also cannot claim to be loving their neighbor as themselves, as Jesus taught. Therefore, as Christians, we give our lives and our fortunes to end this evil in our land. Those are, those are very bold words. Many, have, many good Christian men and women have done just that. What has motivated Christians to tear down racial barriers? Well, the driving force is the desire to follow our Lord, Jesus. When Jesus started his ministry, he, made, he declared that statement of purpose that we read at the beginning in Luke chapter 4. Jesus said that he was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, to, procl to proclaim liberty to the captives, both literally and spiritually, to recover the sight of the blind, spiritual blindness, of course, but sometimes physical, physical healing as well, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, Jesus' followers have worked to set people free on his behalf, as we've looked at today. You know, the church is supposed to be a little colony of heaven. We should start living like we're in heaven right now, ruled by the laws of that heavenly kingdom that, that we're headed towards. Which means we need to make no distinction in the way that we view people, because God doesn't. We need to love and serve all people, not just the ones that we know and like. We've got to flat out refuse to exclude people that are different than us. Jesus didn't. He was known as a friend to all people. 
and when we have the opportunity to share the gospel with those around us. As we love the way God does, we'll gain credibility that can form a bridge for the gospel to travel across. We're headed towards heaven, and God gave us a compelling vision of racial unity that we'll experience there. God's taking history towards an end that's described in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. I love this verse because I think, I mean, to have every, some people represented from every single tribe and nation and people and language, how many is that? And if you think not just like all the nations right now, but all of the nations that have ever existed throughout history, that it's, it's just staggering to think about how many people will be there. This is a picture of heaven. God's moving history toward that end. So much diversity, so much unity, and so many people. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take an eternity just to meet everybody. How exciting that God gives us a role to play in building his kingdom his family. Here's the next steps you might want to take. One next step is to respond to the gospel of grace for the very first time. That will change your view of people and give you an abundant life. Also, you might confess any prejudice, superiority, superiority or racial barriers that you've allowed to creep up in your life. Or another next step might be to forgive any hurts that I've experienced from prejudice and work through any bitterness. God can help you forgive. The first step is to make a decision to forgive, and the second step takes longer. We've got to work through the emotions of forgiveness, but God will give what you need to work through the forgiveness if you ask for his help. I hope you join us next week as we conclude this whole message series. We'll be ending on a high note as we describe one final way that the Christian movement has made a difference in the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your incredible love for all people, people of every nation, in color and skin and language. Thank you, Jesus, for setting us free and providing a path towards spiritual liberation and a path towards an abundant life. Would you help us to see and to love others the way that you do and be a part of bringing many people from different backgrounds to faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a great week and I hope to see you next time.